Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host. And our guest today is Jill Teets of the Sober Powered podcast. She is going to come on and share her own story. And what I think is really cool about it is that she is also a biologist and chemist, and she is going to share her perspective coming from science and using science to help with it with addiction and how that helped her get sobriety and change her life and use that way of thinking as a way to frame her own problematic drinking. So it was a great episode. It was wonderful to have Jill on and share her wisdom, her knowledge, and just herself in this episode. So I hope you get a lot out of it. and I hope you really enjoy it. Before we start, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, think about sharing the podcast with a friend or write a review wherever you get your podcasts. That really does help people find the Addicted Mind podcast and get the podcast a lot of exposure. So I really appreciate it. And I do read the reviews and they are really meaningful to me that this podcast is having a strong impact on a lot of people and helping a lot of people. So with that, let's go ahead and start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. My guest today is Jill Teets, and she is going to talk about some of her own story of getting sobriety and also talk about some of her expertise in chemistry and biology. So I'm excited to talk to you, Jill. Please introduce yourself. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. First of all, I've been listening to your show for a while. So this is very exciting to talk to you face to face. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So I just celebrated two years of sobriety last week, actually, That's which awesome. was really That's exciting a- for me. Yeah. It feels like I'm crossing over 
into like a new phase of it and it feels cool. I'm really proud of it. You should be that. That's amazing. Thank you. So let's jump in and let's start to, I guess, kind of set the stage and, and kind of hear a little bit of your story about uh, your journey through addiction. And then we'll get into some of the neurobiology and the chemistry and biology of it. I'd love to pick your brain about that and understand some of that parts and how that impacted that knowledge impacted your own journey. So first, just tell me how it all started. Yeah. So I had my very first drink when I was 18 years old and I was on vacation with my family. We were cruising to Bermuda. So the legal drinking age there is 18. So I was allowed to have a drink. I had my parents' permission, and I got a glass of wine on the ship. And about halfway through, I started kind of feeling the effects of it. And I was instantly hit with all of the shame. Like, you are a bad person. You're a loser. You've done something wrong. And it was very alarming for me to feel that way. And I didn't drink after that for years. And the only reason I started drinking was in graduate school because everybody else did except for me. So I was 22 at the time. And I thought, you know, they won't really want to hang out with me or have me come out with them after work if I don't partake. So I just started ordering what like the person next to me would order because I didn't even know like what to get because I had only had that one like half a drink. And it took like maybe a couple times going out with them for me to get like my first real buzz on. And when Uh I got that, I was like, okay, here we go. This is, (laughs) this is why people drink. Now I understand. And then it was just a disaster. I immediately had no control over myself. I had no understanding of like how much was too much. And I had no ability to stop once I started unless like I either got sick or the alcohol ran out. I was going to ask a question. What was it like for you, you know, starting to, I guess, I mean, my story is a little bit different because I started drinking very early in, in my teenage years and, and to deal with all, all a bunch of stuff. But what was it for you in starting to see your colleagues start to drink? What was it about that that you wanted to be able to fit in or or be a part of? Yeah, good question. So I was bullied through all of middle and high school. Um, so I never really had any friends. I was never invited to parties. And I think that's the main reason that I didn't drink in high school because I had no opportunity to drink. I wasn't invited anywhere, which was very protective. And now I'm thankful for it in in like a weird way. Sure, sure, yeah. then when I saw everyone else doing it and I was so used to no one liking me and no one wanting to be my friend, I thought if I didn't do it, I would just have more of the same experience. So wanting to be included. And then you found alcohol and started, you said, get, get, get a buzz on. So it obviously did something for you that shifted something. Yeah, it felt amazing. Like I thought it was the best feeling that's ever existed. I couldn't understand why people wouldn't want to do it every single day. And in graduate school, they did. Like the culture around science is that 
we just drink all the time, like at my job and at every other lab environment that I've worked in, there's alcohol in the fridge at all times. We have happy hours, not so much now in quarantine, but before weekly people talk about drinking all the time. We go out to lunch and drink. So it's a very big drinking culture. And in grad school, people would have alcohol on their desks. The professors would drink and party with us. We would drink at the school. So it was this huge culture that I felt like if I don't drink with them, they're not going to want me to hang around. So I thought I could just have like kind of one and, and, you know, lurk and nurse it. But then once I had one, I was like, wow, what is this magic? (laughs) What is this thing? It does something. It's kind of (laughs) crazy. Yeah. And I, I would imagine if like, you know, you were saying earlier, being bullied, not being part of the the group or or feeling that way that if you have a few drinks in there, that kind of takes that all away and makes it a little bit easier in a way. Yeah, I felt instantly included. I felt like one, just like one of the group. I was just like in there, everyone liked me. We had like you know, that fake connection that forms and, and like, I felt more relaxed and comfortable and, and like I could potentially make friends here. And yeah, so it helped a lot with fitting in and feeling comfortable, even like putting myself out there. Right. I mean, that's kind of what it does. And, and that's, uh, intoxicating in a way that can keep someone wanting to come back. Yep. And it did make me want to keep coming back. (laughs) Right. Yeah, and I met my husband actually shortly after I started drinking. Um, he was a few years older than me, finishing up his PhD, and unfortunately, he saw like the whole thing from when I first started drinking to like the whole downfall to now. But yeah, we used to go out, and he could always control himself, and I was always getting sick, and like getting sloppy and embarrassing myself, and. Later, when we got married, I used to get so mad at him, like in my head, like, why can he switch to water? And like, I can't. And I used to blame him, like, you should help me more. And (laughs) so I even tried to get him. It's your responsibility um, to fix this. (laughs) Right? Right. Yeah. You need to take care of me because I can't. So why don't you help me? Yeah. And it was just a mess. But yeah, so grad school and then within the year I was a daily drinker, which wasn't, it didn't seem abnormal because everybody was drinking five days a week when I was at work. So why, like, were they not drinking on the weekend? Probably not. So I just thought it was normal behavior. And I learned that like when we have stress at work and like experiments don't work out or something you have a drink and you feel better, even if it's at like three o'clock. So I really didn't think my behavior was weird. I was just doing right. what you're supposed right. to do. What you, what you were seeing around you. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm kind of fitting in here, but it sounds like for you, it was doing something different as well. Answering a different call. I think like some people that they can drink, but it doesn't have the same impact on them. And then other people, it does something else with the brain. <laughs> 
Yes, it was doing something very special for me that I thought everyone was experiencing. And I only learned like much, much later that alcohol like doesn't feel the same for everybody. Like it might feel yeah. like the best thing that's ever happened to my life. And other people is just like, meh, like this is good. It's fine. Right. It's like when people would leave half a drink behind or something, I could not understand. Like, why wouldn't you finish that? <laughs> Like, why would you drink it all? Come on, it's right there. Do it. Yeah. Yeah, can I drink yeah. it for you? Like, I used to finish my husband's drinks because he's just a normal social drinker. And I couldn't understand why he wouldn't want to finish his drink. So I would finish the drink for him. Yeah, and then that got me in trouble too, finishing other people's drinks when I had already yeah, had way too many. <laughs> right, yeah, absolutely. So when did you start to kind of say, okay, I got to change this. This isn't working I, I, I don't like what's happening here. I, I got to do something. Yeah. So the second year of my drinking, so my tolerance increased by a lot. So I had, I had a lot of stress that year and I learned like alcohol helps you with stress. So I started drinking a lot more and I noticed that my tolerance had doubled and I was drinking a lot. Like I would make these Cosmos, but in pint glasses. And it would be like 80% or more alcohol in there. And then I started having two of those a night. And when right. that happened and I was going to, I was like blacking out several nights a week and going to work massively hungover. I started to think like, this is kind of a lot of alcohol that you are drinking. And then naturally I was like, okay, well let's drink less. Let, we should just try to moderate and then that's right. going to solve the problem. <laughs> and it, it, it didn't, it, it sounds like that didn't work for you. No, I couldn't do it. Um, I've had periods in my life where I could kind of maybe not go as crazy as normal, but I never skipped a day if the alcohol would run out because like my, one of the strategies that actually did work was I would buy a bottle of wine and share it with my husband. And when it was gone, there's nothing else in the house. So that doesn't really count. That's like forced moderation. Right. But yeah, I never skipped a day. I would just like drink all day and all night on the weekends. Like I had no ability to moderate. Like I tried to get my husband to help me. I tried right, to get right. him to pour my drinks for me because I thought like, you know, he needs to be, since he can be responsible for himself, he should also be responsible for me and tell me when I need to stop. And so, that never, that didn't work once. <laughs> right. So, so that didn't work. And then you finally said, I, I just got to be completely sober. I, I can't do this moderation. So I was very dedicated. I thought I could figure it out, even though years and years of failure at moderating. And then towards the end, I started to have a lot of mental health issues from all the alcohol that I was drinking. I started to really hate myself and I became very suicidal. And right. So, so it that went was, really dark. It went really it dark did. for you. It got really scary. So I had been trying to moderate for like five years at that point. And I thought like, okay, I'm not going to drink for 90 days. 
And then my whole intention was not like, let's see what that's like. My intention was like, my tolerance is too high and I have a bad habit and all this stuff and time off is going to cure me. So I went, I actually went back to drinking after that 90 days and had to see, I saw the same destruction, the same like suicidal thoughts came right back. And I had realized from the 90 day experience, I didn't feel suicidal the entire time, even though I didn't have like all of this, you know, self-love and like good opinion of myself, I wasn't having those scary thoughts. And that finally allowed me to accept, like, if I drink, I'm going to be suicidal. And that's too scary. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm glad that you can see that and, and and realize that because that does get really scary. And we know alcohol impacts our mental health, the way we think, the way our brain works. And so talking about the brain, one of the questions I wanted to talk to you about, you're a scientist, you have a bachelor's in chemistry, a master's in biology, and I'm really wondering how that impacted your whole journey, being a researcher, thinking critically. What was that like? Yeah, so a main part of my job is to keep up with the latest research in my field. So I know where to find this stuff. I'm very comfortable reading it. And because I had so much self-hatred while I was drinking, and I used to tell myself, like, this is your fault. You're a loser. You're a bad person. If only you were stronger, you could be more like your husband. And when I finally accepted, like, there was just no way I could keep it in my life and be safe, I wanted to understand, like, did I really choose it? Is it because I'm actually not strong enough? Am I really a weak loser? And I just started reading about it. So I started reading about it like every single day (laughs) and trying to figure out like, like, am I a suicidal person or was this from the alcohol? And why couldn't I, why can my husband make the decision to switch to water and I can't? So I started looking into it all. And the more I learned about it, the more I was able to let go of that, like faulting myself and shaming myself for the way that I drink. So in researching it, it it sounds like you were even able to get more self-acceptance to be able to understand this as a a brain issue, a chemical issue. Exactly. There's just something going on inside my brain that is not going on in other people's brains. And because of that, when I have one drink, it just like unlocks this thing that makes me just want to have more and more and more and more and more and more. And it makes me think about it all the time and obsess about it. And yeah, now I have a very good understanding of like why I couldn't stop and why I suffered in certain ways and and why like Because when you quit, you usually look back and you're like, I wish I saw this sooner. Like, why did I spend so much time trying to moderate when I clearly couldn't? And now I understand why I spend so much time doing that too. And it's just been very freeing. Right. It's kind of been able to, I guess what I want to say is that it's it's opened you up to that self-acceptance and that self-compassion to be able to see it from this different light. Exactly. Yeah. Self-compassion is a good way to describe it. I had none of that before. 
Right. And you were talking earlier about being bullied, being excluded. And it makes sense that, you know, alcohol takes those feelings away in a way. I mean, it interacts with the brain and the pleasure centers of the brain and and does all this uh, stuff to the brain that allows you to now feel differently. Yeah. And it makes you care so much less or like not at all about your problems. Right. And so in doing some of this uh, research and thinking critically about it, I guess, from a scientific perspective, what was that like? Because I imagine like there's a part of us, there's the human part of us, right? That has all of our emotions and, and all this stuff. And then there's this critical thinking part of us. And sometimes those collide together and they don't always make sense. And sometimes we have to wrestle with those two parts of ourselves. And especially I think if, if we're trained in science and have this very, uh, I don't want to say black and white thinking about the world in a, in a sense from that like analytical perspective, but then there's this emotional part and I'm wondering how those played out for you together. Yeah. So in science, you're trained to be very objective and your thoughts and beliefs about something don't make it true. You have to actually look at what's really going on and either prove that it's true or find out that it's not. And I have applied that skill set to my drinking and my sobriety. And I think that's a big reason I was able to stop. I finally accepted reality and like looked at my drinking for what it actually was, not like what I was hoping it could be someday. Like I was so focused before on the potential. Maybe someday, you know, I can learn how to start and stop. And like always focusing on this goal, this like dream that I had. And I was eventually able to say like, no, let's look at the truth. Let's be objective about it and just look at the facts. And the same way that I approach sobriety, like I look at everything I've experienced, everything that I've felt. And you can look at all of those emotions and feelings and behaviors in a very factual, objective way. And for me, removing the emotional side and considering reality allows me to remove like all that shame and like you're a loser and, and like talking badly to myself. Like I don't have to do that if I'm just looking at facts. It removes like me and who I am from the question it's almost like it allowed you to step out of that trauma so that you could be objective about your situation and i think it's hard sometimes our trauma can be so overpowering it engulfs all of our thinking and it sounds like applying your your knowledge in that way allowed you to do that because it can be hard to step out of shame and self-loathing so hard. And I do it now too, even when I have triggers and my first instinct is like, you know, let's blow up the entire world and just like light everything on fire and drink and just like destroy everything. Let's just ruin it all and forget about this. And then I can step back and say like, well, no, <laughs> let's right. look at the truth. You can't do that first of all, because you know how it's going to go. And I can see not how I hoped that it would go, but how it would actually go. And then I can use that line of thinking to consider something that would actually be beneficial 
without ruining my life. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. We can pull on that objective part of our brain to be able to make more strategic decisions. And when we're caught up in addiction or caught up in traumatic thinking, if you want to call it that, yeah, we're just not going to make really good decisions. Yeah. And when you're very emotional about something or very passionate about something or feel strongly about it, it's hard to think clearly. And when you can disconnect yourself from that and just look at the actual facts of what's going on, it's helpful to make a good decision. And like, I wasn't able to do this before. Like my drinking brain was just like emotions and like drama and like all of this stuff all over the place. I wasn't able to tap into this clear thinking, objective reality side. Right. When you started thinking this way, how did your like your bachelor's in, is in chemistry, your master's is in biology, and putting all those together to kind of see this as a, a chemical reaction in the brain, did that have an impact on how you thought about this and how you started to see this? Absolutely. I think that without my specific background and my training and I wouldn't have been able to get to this place very easily. I'm just used to thinking this way. Like I naturally have a very bubbly social personality and at work, everybody's very analytical and they like the facts and they like a ton of details. So I've been working in my professional life to get more onto that line of thinking and not be so like social and fun and like big picture. And being less big picture has helped me understand like why this happened to me and why this didn't happen to my husband, for example. Like the way I see it now is it's not it's not something I chose to do. It's not something I, I did because I wasn't strong enough or because I'm a loser. It's a bunch of risks and you know, genetics or life experiences, it's a bunch of different risks that add and subtract from each other. And if they add up enough, your risk of having a problem is very, very high. And then, bam, you have a problem. And for other people, um, like my husband, when he drinks, he feels very tired. After like two drinks, he starts to get very tired. That significantly decreases his risk of having a problem because he's why would he have five drinks if he feels very tired after two so i see it more as like a bunch of blocks that add up together and like create this thing it's not me at all it's just a bunch of different components that come together can you talk about what some of those blocks might be for people so they could kind of see that analogy of like stacking these risk factors that put you, your brain, your body at this higher risk to be addicted. I think that would be really, really helpful. Yeah. So one of the big ones is your childhood. So if you observed a parent abusing alcohol or having some form of an addiction, if you have any childhood trauma at all, it doesn't have to be addiction or mental health related. The way that your body processes alcohol my body processes alcohol like a pro. I don't get those two or three day hangovers. I would have hangovers of death, but they would fade by lunchtime. So then I was always right. ready to go that evening. 
that increases your risk. Because if I had a three-day hangover, it's less likely I'm going to be a daily drinker. The way that alcohol feels for you is a huge one. Like for me, it felt like the best thing ever. And that's just like our brain chemistry, like the way that alcohol stimulates endorphins to be released in the brain. Some people have a ton of endorphins that are released, so you feel amazing. And other people have like a small amount, so it doesn't feel that good for them. So if it feels good for you, you're going to want to do it, you know, 24-7. So all of those things and adult trauma, chronic stress – yeah, and then those like I was just thinking about the endorphins, you know, they mm-hmm. they spike up. If you have this huge release, the brain is always compensating. So you have this huge release and then you have this huge drop. And I, exactly. I would affect, I would imagine that affects mood and and like you were saying earlier about, you know, feeling suicidal. So you're swinging your neurochemistry up and down. And some people might have it more smooth, and if you have trauma, you're definitely going to be up and down a lot more. But like you said, adult stress, all that other stuff too. There was a very cool study from, I think, like the late 80s. And they looked at endorphin levels for social drinkers and people with problems with alcohol. And what they found is that everybody has like a baseline level of endorphins, but some people have very low levels naturally. And what they found is when, if they gave all of these people a drink, the people who had pretty average levels of baseline endorphins, they would stay flat. They'd stay exactly the same. People that had very low levels of endorphins naturally, like that was just their natural state, when they had a drink, their endorphin levels would shoot up way above baseline. So it'd be like, a slanted line. So they would go way, 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 way above the baseline of the average people. So it's really illustrating like how much better it can feel for some people compared to other people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that goes to challenge one of those ideas of like what you were saying earlier, I must just be a horrible person that I can't control this. When in fact, there's this whole neurobiology responses going on that and and factors that go on that really challenge that idea of just willpower other stuff is here yeah exactly and as you abuse alcohol it makes changes to your reward system and other areas of your brain and some people will have more changes than other people not everyone's brain reacts exactly the same to alcohol. So if alcohol changes your brain and changes your reward system more than it does for some other guy, then you're going to be more prone to addiction than that person because it can actually change the brain to make it feel even better than it already felt and release more endorphins and and like light up all these other areas of the brain like there are some really cool MRIs of people with problems and people that do not have a problem. And the person that has a problem, their brain, when they have a drink or even think about alcohol, their whole brain's going to be like lit up and active. And the social drinker won't. 
they might have like a little splash of activity, but not really. So if you even think about alcohol and your brain starts like getting excited about it, you're more likely to have a problem. Right. I mean, you're just sitting there and you're, yeah, you're thinking about it. And that's where like cravings can come from. Um, yeah. And then all of a sudden your brain is lit up. And then that also drives, you know, we have an evolutionary response to pursue that. You know, the, the brain is saying, this is important. Go get it. <laughs> Figure out, find a way to get it. And you get stuck in that. And don't get rid of it. <laughs> yeah. And that's like the whole purpose of dopamine. It's a survival thing. It te- it's released not to feel good, which I think is the most common misconception about dopamine. It's released to reinforce behavior. So it creates a memory of the behavior and why it was good for you. And it associates all the pleasure you're feeling from the big endorphin release with it being extra good. So the better it feels for you, the more your brain files that away as like, this is critical for our survival. And if alcohol feels way better than anything else, your brain's going to think that's the most important thing in the world. And then you're going to pursue it. And that's where compulsive drinking comes in. And like you say, you know, oh, never again. And then by three o'clock, you're like, oh, I didn't mean it. (laughs) It's because your brain thinks it's critical for your survival. Right. So the dopamine actually reinforces the endorphin release and pairs those together. And now this is, this becomes important for your survival. Yet yeah. on a certain level, I guess, cognitively, or maybe our frontal cortex, maybe in some ways knows that's not true. But then our body's like, no, it's absolutely true. Go, go get that drug. Go get that thing. Go get it now. Exactly. Yeah, you're 100% correct. So endorphins actually trigger the release of dopamine. So if you have a ridiculous amount of endorphins that are being released when you drink, that's translating to a ton of dopamine, which is then causing a memory of how amazing this thing is for you. And yeah, even though your brain is like, I have to drive, I have to get up tomorrow, I do this every time. I need to like stop drinking or or like not have too many tonight. Your body doesn't care. It's like, no, three is amazing and important. So four is going to be more amazing. And five would be even more amazing. And you can't like listen to these thoughts that you have. And I think that's where a lot of the shame comes in because we do have those thoughts trying to keep ourselves in check. But then, like you said, the brain is like, nope, this is critical. And it's that cognitive dissonance, you know, that like my body's doing this and my brain's saying this. And then we go back to, I think, the old idea of just the morality of addiction. You know, it's just a moral issue. You must be morally weak then. And we have those judgments and those thoughts And then we try and shame ourselves into changing behavior. And it just doesn't work very successfully. Maybe for some people it does, but it's a miserable way to live in shame. Yeah, my experience is the more that I shamed myself, the more alcohol I drank. (laughs) Right. And it comes at like a negative feedback loop where now I feel so miserable and I got to get this endorphin release to just function. It becomes a horrible feedback loop. But 
I think understanding these processes and getting a little distance helps people mitigate some of that shame and say, oh, this is this is bigger than just me as a person. This is this is uh, not totally in my control, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. If you can disconnect it from you and your worth and what it means about who you yeah. are, and you can just look at it as this thing that you happen to have that a ton of other people also have, it helps process it without as much blame. Right which helps you feel better, which helps gives you more resource to be able to move it out of your life. So let's talk a little bit about doing that and how the brain shifts to get away from that feedback loop, that negative endorphin dopamine spiral. <laughs> how do we start to undo that? Yeah. So this is what neuroplasticity is all about. So um, our brains are not static. They don't develop until we're 25 years old and then that's it. Then you have, you know, you got what you got and that's the end of the story. Your brain can always adapt and change. And that's like literally what neuroplasticity means, the brain's ability to adapt. So when you start drinking and you're drinking a lot and you're abusing it, your brain changes and it can make alcohol feel even better. It reinforces that it's the most important thing. Your brain tries to balance out, you know, the relaxing feeling with like, now you got these anxiety feelings. And that can then be undone in sobriety without drinking. And it's not instant, just like adapting to alcohol and being miserable. You weren't miserable and having all of these challenges on your very first drink. That took time right. and it takes yeah. time to go back the other way. But the reason that, you know, that we can never be cured, like this is a permanent thing is because those pathways don't disappear. They just get less used. So if you think of it as like a hiking trail, there are some that are like paved and a ton of people go on them, a lot of tourists, and they're very easy to walk down. It's like a street basically. That's what alcohol was for us. Like we would have some kind of trigger, usually an emotional trigger, and then your brain would be like, okay, well, alcohol. And you just go down that path. And when you're not drinking, you have to break that association by taking a different path. And maybe in the beginning, you're just like trekking through the woods and, you know, it's very hard and you lose your way and you're not sure what to do. But eventually, if you keep going that way and ignore the perfectly paved alcohol path, that one gets overgrown and unused, but it never fully disappears. So you can strengthen other pathways in your brain and leave the alcohol one unused, but it's still there. If you decide to like take it again, then it will get stronger and stronger and stronger, and then you'll be right back. Right. It's already wired in there. So it's kind of, uh, even if you're not actively drinking, it's kind of under the surface. And that's something that anybody has to be aware of. I was just going to say something about that time, that it takes time to undo this process. And that's really where you need that support. And I remember reading somewhere and I can't remember where I heard this, but you know, that two year mark, I, I think you were kind of talking about earlier is where you start to really see those shifts in the brain 
but it takes that time to be able to to get there and uh, that's where you need sometimes for some people they need a lot of support to help them with undo this cycle yeah and in the beginning i think for a lot of people around like two months there's a big burst of mental clarity and that's an amazing feeling. And I'll never forget that even though I'm two years sober now, but when I hit around two months, all of a sudden I could like think again and, and I felt like very present in my own life. Um, and that's just the brain healing just because you stop drinking doesn't mean it's like poof, like back to normal. It takes time to recover and, you know, all the damage that alcohol has done, it takes time to reverse that damage. And a lot of it does improve in the first few months, but then the improvements will continue for a couple of years. So it's a, it's a long process. Um, And support, especially in the beginning is very, very key so that you don't like just take this this road that you're so used to taking that is there just like sparkling, ready for you to go have some more alcohol. Right. Sometimes I say you need to to share the willpower with other people. And, you know, like sometimes other people can have the willpower where we can't in a supportive way. You know, it, it, there's people who do uh, 12 step or um, all, all the other life ring or, um, some of the others out there, whatever the support group is, to be able, a a therapist, a coach, to be able to kind of hold you as you're in that cycle and help your brain shift and change. Yeah. And make you feel like you're not alone and you're understood and people care about you. I think that's something that means a lot to me is I feel like I have people that care about me. And if I you know, blew up my life and decided to drink again, people would be asking if I was okay. They would be worried about me. And I go to therapy every single week. I have to see my therapist. (laughs) Like that's very powerful, especially in the beginning. Like you have to see this person and, you know, you want to be honest and not keep secrets from your therapist. So it's a lot of accountability or meetings. Like you have to go see that group of people. Yeah. And do it, right? And people who can give you accountability, but also be compassionate and kind and understanding. I think that's really critical too. And then I think learning the new skills to emotionally cope with stress and anxiety, because that's still life still shows up and life can be really hard. And if alcohol has been the way you've primarily coped and your brain knows how to cope, you got to learn new skills. And that takes practice and time and you know, changing your self-talk and dealing with your trauma, all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's worth the investment, but it takes time. It can be hard. Yeah, it's very hard. It's a big challenge and you don't, you don't expect that challenge to be there. Like, I think at least for me, when I stopped drinking, I was like, okay, life is going to be amazing. Like, here we go. I'm ready (laughs) for it. And then I had like a bunch of anger and like all the stuff that I had to work through. And, and it's alarming. Like you don't realize how much stuff is under the surface that you've just been pushing down and pushing down for years. But now I've finally been able to work through it. And, and it's amazing knowing I don't have all of this like hidden, hidden stuff that's just like waiting for me. Yeah. Just like lurking in the background there that you have to kind of (laughs) shove away 
And then, yeah, it's it's very freeing, and and you, you, you know, life still shows up. Life's hard. There's a lot of you know things that come in our life that are difficult and painful, but you've got the support network. You've got the people around you that can help you, want to help you, and you can also give that back to other people too. And mm-hmm. uh, it's a much better place to be. I agree. Um, totally. So, Jill, we're kind of we're going a little bit over on our time, but that's okay. So, one of the questions I I love to ask at the end of my podcast, if you listen to it, is just one thing. If you if you could say one thing to anybody out there who might be struggling, what would you want to tell them? I would say that you are struggling for a reason. You're listening to this episode for a reason. And to just try to step back from yourself and look at the truth. What is actually causing your suffering? What is your suffering like? What is your entire drinking experience like? Not just the first hour. Follow it through until like the next morning. So I would encourage you to just to really recognize that you're considering not drinking for a very good reason. People don't just like decide to not do the most socially acceptable thing to do because they, you know, just feel like doing something hard. You're considering it because it's doing something to your life that you don't like. Absolutely. Well said, Jill. Where can people find you? Because you also have your own podcast. So yeah, tell us about that. Where can people find, find you, get more information out about you? Yeah. So my podcast is called Sober Powered wherever you listen to podcasts. That's also my website, my Instagram, Facebook group. So if you just search for Sober Powered, you will find me. Awesome. Jill, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and just putting it all out there. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for having me. This was, this was very exciting to come on your show. Oh, thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com so you can get all the links there. And if you want to continue the conversation online, think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation there. And think about leaving a review or sharing the podcast with a friend. Once again, I really appreciate it. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day. And I will talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.